This episode is brought to you by Roberta's, home of Heritage Radio Network for 10 years. Learn more about Roberta's at robertaspizza.com. Hardcore is a new series from Heritage Radio Network. Over six episodes, we're taking a close look at the rebirth of American cider. Really, it wasn't until about 10 years ago that cider started to be revitalized in the United States. From the science of fermentation. So yeast, it's a fungus. It's a unicellular fungus. To the magic of terroir. What really excites us is thinking about communicating that very sort of spiritual aspect of knowing a piece of land. We're setting aside our cider donuts to gain a deeper understanding of this singular beverage. I love a cider donut. You don't have to have a cider donut with your cider, and I will die on that point. Subscribe to Hardcore wherever you listen to podcasts. Hey, 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 welcome to Beer Sessions Radio on the Heritage Radio Network. I'm Jimmy Carboni, and today is November 12th, 2019. It's the middle of Cider Week NYC, and it's one of our favorite times of the year here. Uh, We've got some great guests, and we're going to be talking about cider, land, and and other things that are part of the whole cider scene. Let's go around the room and introduce ourselves, everybody. How you doing, Jimmy? It's uh, Jehul Maplestone. I'm from Descendant Cider Company right here in uh, Queens in the city. Wow, man, you're making cider right in our backyard here. That's right, just up the road from here. All right. Hi, I'm Melissa Madden. I'm a cider maker and farmer from the Finger Lakes, founder of Finger Lakes Cider House. Melissa, I'm so happy to have you on. You had some really great ideas for the show, and we're looking forward to talking to you today. Hi, I'm Rachel Fryer, and I am the uh, Cider Week, New York Cider Week producer. And it's really exciting. So this year you've produced, how many different Cider Weeks are in New York State right now? Um, Cider Week Hudson Valley is the first one. Um, Then we go to Cider Week uh, Western New York. Cider Week Finger Lakes, and now Cider Week New York City. That's great, Rachel. I'm so Woo-hoo. so proud of you and so happy to have you on. Yay. And our special guest, who uh, to me is this like folk arts culture legend. <laughs> Whoa, let's live up. Um, my name is Maria Kennedy. Uh, I'm a professor at Rutgers University and otherwise known as Cider with Maria. Um, all of the Instagram and the internet. <laughs> well, that's great. We're going to cut to the chase here. Um, when we first started this conversation, for this year, every year for Cider Week, we have a different theme. Last year, we did State of the Cider, and we had people calling in from all over the country. Two years ago, Maria, you were on. Uh, Steve Sellen from South Hill Cider and uh, Peter Yee from Brooklyn Cider House. We were just talking about still cider as a, a style. And uh, so we tried during Cider Week to kind of take advantage of who's in town for the event, but also to cover, like, you know, go a little deeper than we usually do. Um, so the initial email we sent about this was that, that Maria suggested we could do a broad topic on cider and um, our relationship to the land would be very interesting. We could encompass a whole lot of topics. So we can talk about terroir, land justice, regenerative agriculture. And um, I thought, especially having Melissa and Maria hit her start that, let, let's, let's dive into it because, you know, cider is an agricultural product. We know people... The Cider Week message is about cider revival and the history of, of uh, growing cider apples. You know, Guidon Call always talks about 1805 to 1905, there were like 20,000 cataloged varieties of apples, and now like 
there's only like 88% of apples grown in America are from like 12 varieties. So um, let, let, let's, let's talk about things dear to our heart. I know, Melissa, you, you have a farmer and a cider maker. Um, you know, wh- what is the role of, of, of cider growing and the importance of the different trees, agriculture to you? Let's, let's get a little intro on this. In cider specifically? Yeah, sure. Sure. Well, I think that the the real question is what role does do uh, does cider play in the regenerative landscape of the Northeast? And the answer is that trees grow really well here, and they grow on their own. And I started a new project with Maria and Rachel, actually, who are here, um, foraging cider on public lands, which is a really interesting thing. So there's a lot of varieties that escaped what Gideon was talking about, uh, Gideon from Original Sin. Um, when things were cut down or people sort of specified what they were growing in order to meet market demand. Um, There's a lot of wild orchards out there that are Revolutionary War Grant orchards, which is its own set of problems because it it relates to land theft um, from, from Native Americans. But there's a whole package to unpack there about what apples have done to make abundant food possible in the Northeast. Well, in terms of, like, you, you're from the Finger Lakes, and Maria lived up there for a while. It seems to me that Finger Lakes is, like, this promised land of, like, land to war. It's the great, greatest place in New York to grow uh, grapes for wine and apparently now apples. Want to tell me a little bit more about the Finger Lakes? I think the Finger Lakes are... I, I, I like the way you said the promised land because it feels like that. Once you get up there, you kind of, like, entered into another zone. Mm. Um, and I think it's because of the way that um, agriculture has worked in our in the history of our country is that, um, you know, when Europeans started to settle the area, there were a lot of small farms. It's not an area that's really great for big, large-scale farming. And so a lot of those small-scale orchards from those farms are still there, and they're sometimes hidden in the landscape. And the process of finding them is a really magical process. And the way that people are starting to plant new orchards in that landscape um, reflects um, that small-scale history. And I think that that's, it makes for a different kind of relationship between people and the land. It makes for um, something that I think is more human-scale rather than industrial-scale. And I think that affects the whole way that, that people approach cider in the Finger Lakes. Do I get to have an outburst? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I think one of the things that's really special about the Finger Lakes is, number one, the cider culture that's there. It's very supportive of other people starting cideries, and it's partially because we're all on a journey to figure out how our farms, so I, I have had a farm there for 11 years, um, match with what's naturalized. Like, there's so many apple trees that are naturalized. and. Um, we have this incredible resource, which is Cornell, the Cornell Agricultural Experiment Station in Ithaca, and specifically Ian Merwin from Black Diamond Cider. So um, when I was starting our little wild forage project, I would bring him samples of what I found in the forest, and some of them he'd be like, oh, it's a seedling. Oh, that's a cultivated variety. And it's really cool. You can just track what rolled downhill from a cultivated variety and grew up as a seedling. And that's infinitely possible in the Finger Lakes. And so there's lots of people grafting those varieties into their orchard and preparing for things to change dramatically with the climate and with the culture in terms of what's possible with apples. How important is it, if you're making cider, to be hands-on with your apples, whether you're foraging or growing apples or, or, or grafting? Let's talk about that aspect, because I know you can make cider from juice, you can make cider from a lot of things, 
how important is it for the cider maker to, to have their hands in uh, that aspect? I feel like you should answer this first. Yeah, uh, it's, I mean, some people say you have to own an orchard or you have to grow your own trees. I thoroughly disagree because um, I think you, you need to know a lot about apples and you need to trust the people that are growing them for you. But, um, yeah, I mean, for me, I, I work really closely with farmers that I get my apples from. We have our own orchard and we do grow our own. So, you know, I like a mix of it all, but I don't have the time to focus and on just growing apples. I want to also be involved in the production and uh, all these other parts of the business. So um, for me, I think it's, it's important to have uh, that connection to the apples, but you don't, see, don't necessarily have to be growing them yourself. Um, and I mean, that's evident with a lot of this wild forage cider that's going on. I mean, that's just going out and taking what's already growing and, and uh, we do a lot of that. So I mean, we have sort of a connection on, on that side of things, but, uh, but yeah, um, it's, it's more about knowing your farmers and, and uh, whoever's growing them, knowing what they're doing, I think. Marie, anyone want to add something oh, well, to that? I should say that I'm neither a farmer nor a producer, so I feel like I'm <laughs> the least qualified person to answer that question. But um, I, think that, I think that having some kind of connection with the process, whatever part of the process you're in, having an, uh, an intimate connection with that process is important, whether it's on the production side or on the growing side and, and being connected to where everything's coming from and where it's going to. I think that's important. Yeah, absolutely. As a, as a consumer of cider and a lover of cider and a drinker of cider and a promoter of cider, um, I think it's really important when you can ask where the apples are from or where, where, where the orchards are or where the juice comes from. That's a really important connection to the consumer for cider these days. Um, even when the information is on the bottle or on the can, it's very educational and it connects the consumer to the land and to where the, the cider is produced. And I think that's a really important aspect for people embracing cider. As so you think that traceability thing. is important, even, even yep. if you're buying juice from somewhere or or other things because we've had so, one thing I like about cider is I feel like it's at this stage where every producer operates differently you know there's people that say I have nothing to do with an orchard because my job is to make the cider and market it and um, there's other people as you know that are just foraging and only want these wild apples um, let's keep talking about this because I think it's pretty interesting you know, there's not too many industry. I mean, there was like this in craft beer in the beginning. Talks about, you know, some people were contracting, some people were making at other people's breweries as gypsies. So there is kind of a similarity. I think the question for me is how the traceability is how are you keeping an orchard in business? And then how are you impacting the management style of that orchard? Um, I think there's huge precedence in the wine industry for impacting the management style of, of vineyards by paying a higher price for grapes and demanding that we move towards certification or IPM or biointensiveness, biodynamic or organic. And that's still developing in the cider industry. And the interesting thing about the Finger Lakes is just north of the Finger Lakes is the whole Lake Ontario Fruit Belt, which has generally been um, really you know, a large quantity of apples for processing. And Mott's is uh, up there as a processing unit. But that, Does that include the Rochester area? Yeah, from Rochester to Buffalo specifically. Um, and, you know, the, the cidery I started originally, Kite and String, sources from some of those orchards. A lot of people in the Finger Lakes still source from those orchards because a lot of us are still getting our orchards going. Um, so there's a mix of those culinary apples with the specific cider variety apples. But that's 
So there's variety selection and then there's management style. And I think one of the powers of alcohol that I've seen is to really impact management style and to create contracts that are truly regenerative in terms of ecological management. Okay, now we're going to, so Maria, you brought in a peri from England. Mm-hmm. Let's talk about that in the context of, of traditions and terroir. So I, I actually, was, may, may I have more? It's really great. Yeah, yeah pass the bottle. I, I, as anyone that doesn't like a good peri, who wants to tell us what peri is? Well, I'll tell you why I chose this. Um, when I was thinking about like, oh, what should I, what kind of bottle should I bring when I'm coming in a Jimmy show? Um, for a, for a, a show on land and relationships to land, I was, this is where I really fell in love with cider was when I was in England and in particular Perry. And this particular bottle is a bottle of Holmer Perry from Ross on Wye Cider Company, um, which is where I spent a season working. And where is it in England? This is near, it's near Ross on Wye in Herefordshire. And um, it's from this one particular tree that's on the, prop- the farm property that's a Holmer tree. It's the biggest tree. It's the oldest tree. It's probably been around for like 200 years. And to me, that just, when I open this bottle and I think about what I'm drinking, I'm drinking, it, a, I'm drinking something that came from one tree on one farm that has a personality that that farm family has a relationship with over many generations. And that kind of relationship to land is something that I find totally fascinating. You know, it's when you're drinking it, you're you're tasting something that I think we would all describe as really interesting and floral and has a lot of a lot of different things going on. But um, but I'm also thinking about the relationship of that family to that farm and how they have grown over generations through different iterations of um, raising sheep to raising apples. You know, the whole story of that farm can be sort of told through that tree and through that bottle of cider. How and old is that tree? I mean, we know, and Perry is a form of, of pear. I don't know exactly um, how old the tree was, but I'm going to guess it was like 200 years old. It was a big old tree. It was probably like 30 or 40 feet high. Um, it just dominated the orchard. And so the, this pear tree produced these pears from which um, they made Perry, which is a really traditional and unique drink in that particular region of England. And lots of people make perry now in the United States and all over the world, but this particular three counties area of Herefordshire, Gloucestershire, and Worcestershire in the southwest of England uh, has a particular history of making perry. And you have these big old trees that have been around for generations. So that's when I was thinking about land and relationships to land. That's I saw this bottle in my shelf that I've had there for like four years since the last time. Well, I've been there since then. But I brought this back a long time ago, and I was like, oh, I'm going to open this bottle today. Excellent. Pretty delicious. Wait, do you want to tell me the <laughs> taste profile on this? It's delicious. Yeah. Yeah, I like that you said floral. It's totally floral. Mm-hmm. And I, w- I would say, like, I wouldn't even know this is made from Paris, like, if I didn't know it was made from Paris. <laughs> the, the closest thing we know, Oliver Cider and Perry mm-hmm. from that region, Herefordshire in England, they do have a Perry that we, we've had. And I know a couple of Finger Lakes makers, like Eve Cidery makes a Perry, don't, don't they, Melissa? Yeah, all wild foraged. Yeah. We're working on one with all the wild trees we're finding, too. Um, in terms of, as a, as a farmer, did you ever... Uh, plant or grow a perry tree or try to because there's something different about perry than than apple trees right 
Not at the Good Life Farm, but in my next project, I think this one tree that we've been stocking for three years, we will graft out. And that's the cool, another cool thing about the Finger Lakes. It's not just a cider region. It's a, it's a really progressive farming region and a really progressive apple region. So there's a great um, organic nursery there called Perry City Nursery that I bring cyan wood to, and they're growing out for me. And we have a Perry tree called Janice that we will be grafting out. I've heard that it takes about 50 years for a peri tree to really reach its, like, nadir or good good production. Jail? I've got a bunch of peri trees I put in. Um, so you're so quiet, man. You have peri trees <laughs> growing in your orchard upstate. Yeah, yeah. Where? Uh, put a few in. Where's the press release? In, uh, it's up in Sullivan County uh, in North Branch, Calicoon. Um, yeah, no, we put, uh, I think I've got some of my trees about four years old now. They're coming along. They're growing really well. Um we got some pears actually popping up this year, which we pulled off because it's still a little bit early. But uh, um, yeah, there's different, you know, there's there's um, dwarf varieties and things like that now with the rootstocks, so you can get them fruiting faster and um, do smaller smaller uh, trees that well, produce quicker. What age are the ones you have? What, how many years in do you think they, they need to be so you can regularly produce? Pears? Honest, like I haven't got a proper commercial crop offer yet, so I, yeah, <laughs> I can only guess. But I mean, we've started getting producing. Uh, trees which are now in i guess they're in, guess they're in their fifth year of life so um i think we'd start to get a bit more next year but i'm probably going to wait another probably year or two something like that so i think you know five to seven years we'll start to get something but i really don't know i know loads of other people growing them and they they uh, are getting crops and, and haven't had them in the ground as uh, like you know for 50 years i've had them in for maybe uh, eight to ten so but you might not are they know. standard mine yeah. um i've got a whole mix yeah um they're, uh, I forget all the uh, names and numbers now from when I put them in, but uh, yeah, they're kind of like um, you know seventy percent things like that, um, semi dwarf. So, and I've been doing some stuff with sort of tighter densities and things like that. There's so many differences between uh, ciders and um, w- what's the type of quince and perry. Do these impact like uh, like alcohol labeling and, and, and licensing? Are you able to to sell a perry as a cider? Does anyone know about this? Um, as far as I know, a lot of the um, regulations, they class like apples and pears in the same. Um, so uh, a New York State uh, licensed uh, farm cideries, we're allowed to, uh, our fermentable sugars have to come from apples or pears. They, that's what they actually um, say. So we can't, uh, as far as quince, I don't know if they sort of include that in the family. So therefore we're allowed to use quince as well. But What about uh, things like blackberries? Well. or You know, technically you're not allowed to ferment them. But uh, I'm not going to talk about it too much because we can add it. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's change, a lot of the, change the subject. Why don't talk about cider week a little bit? Um, I know that you, Jahil, you brought a made a special beverage for cider week. Rachel, tell us about so now cider week New York City. It's like the eighth year, um, the growth of ninth it. Year. Ninth year. Tell us a little bit about what's what's going on, but but really like what it means for the the state and and the the state cider industry. Well, I think that. This is the ninth year of Cider Week that I know that Glenwood started in the Hudson Valley. Um, it's produced by the New York Cider Association today. And I know I've been a participant in Cider Week since 2013 um, on the trade side as a restaurant, as a New York City restaurant. And um, I know that. You worked at Mari's Cheese for a while. Yeah, Mari's Cheese Bar. Yeah. And that's where I, I um, fell in love with cider, brought in a lot of. At some point, I think I had 15 ciders on my list at. 2015. <laughs> um, but I know that it is a the growth of Cider Week and the interest in Cider Week in New York City 
And for the first time, I got to experience it in the Finger Lakes, in the Hudson Valley, a little bit in Western New York. Um, it's pretty, it's pretty impressive, and I feel like that's a really great thing for the industry in general for have as much um, consumers and trade partners really interested in participating in Cider Week and coming together with cideries to produce events for Cider Week. It's a really great, you know, um, just, um, I guess, boost um, to know that there is that so much support from the, from the trade and the consumers that are not from the cider world, which is what, you know, I see and I feel. No, you, and you're doing yeah. a great job. Well, on that note, that's why Jahil's here. So Jahil, you as a cider maker, you, you get excited. Tell us some of the things you're doing. And in fact, you made a special drink for us for Cider Week. Yeah, well, um, Descended, this is our fifth year of uh, being a cidery. And uh, so one of the things we did this year is we've got a few events that are being based in um, breweries around the city. And the main reason we did that is just in the five years, the, the most support we've got in this city has been from other breweries. They've been really excited about having a cidery here in the city. We're, so they're pouring you as on their tap as yeah, like a, a yeah, New York got State Yeah, we've quite cider. a few of the... Uh, um, New York City breweries where like the house cider for the breweries because um, we're the first cider in New York City and, and um, so I think they were kind of excited to have you know this other beverage being made in the city and um, so yeah we've got loads of support from them so this year we did a collaboration with um, Big Alice uh, Big Alice great little brewery over in Long Island City they've also got a barrel room over in Brooklyn uh, John the head brewer there and me have been talking about doing a collaboration for years and uh, um, yeah we finally got around to doing it and uh, we brewed it up just leading so up what, to... What's the style? What is this drink? Uh, so Graph, it's, it's kind of a beer cider hybrid. Um, and I've, I've been doing loads of these uh, sort of small batch tests of, of Graphs and things, different um, styles, sort of trying to figure out good ways to do it. And this was one that um, we brewed a, a kettle sour uh, beer, so really simple grain bill, just pills in the malt, um, very clean, just trying to keep it all very simple. This is... This is something that uh, I think we want to go back and rework it and try and make it better. But uh, we did that, and then we got some great juice from um, uh, Orange County from a, an orchard I work with there uh, to mix of um, what is it, the Max and uh, maybe Gold Rush or something. So you, you, you mix the cider juice with the mash, and then you let it ferment. Uh, no, so stage? it's, it's um, we, so we do the kettle sour. So I mean, for those that are familiar, kettle sour um, uh, beer, they they. Uh, mash they put it in the kettle and then you add lacto and let it um take over for normally sort of 24 48 hours something like that in the kettle and then after that's finished you basically boil the wort and uh and then set it off to ferment like you would a normal beer so after we've done the boil we're then blending in fresh juice um and doing the ferment there and then we fermented it with our white wine yeast which is the same yeast we use with uh dry which is the other side we got here um yeah we just after that just fermented it out as you would any beer or cider and um, yeah, it was just a bit of an experiment, just a bit of a fun thing to do with the, the brewery that we, uh, we and like. Anybody and want to say, how do you feel like a graph fits into, like as a cider drinker, I'm gravitating more towards like the Perry and some of the finer like orchard-based ciders. Um, who, who is interested in, in trying a graph? I mean, does anyone talk about different types of styles in the cider world? I definitely don't think it appeals to the uh, cider purist, but... <laughs> well, it's, it's pretty good. It's, it's very refreshing. Um, I know in New York State we have a wide range. We have ciders that are being made like beer. We have ciders that are that are. Um, anyways, nobody wants it. That's oh no, I think slightly it's, controversial. I think it's very like I feel like yeah, I could just sit back and really enjoy this. You know, very um, like it makes me feel like I want to go down to Brighton Beach and like chill on a summer day. 
can on the beach. Yeah. All I right. think also there's like this kind of wrestling match between cider and beer right now, so it's useful to speak to it and play with it. I think yeah. it's pretty cool. It was pretty exciting. I thought it would mix up the show a little bit, Jill. So yeah, it's, <laughs> thank I mean, you. The thing I like about it is um, the, there's obviously like the the Perry we just had. Like it's a great uh, example of a um, a really complex drink that derives a lot of character from a particular tree, a particular region. There's there's all these sort of aspects to that that are really interesting. Um, something like this, no one's going to go. Oh, I can really taste the grain that was grown in whatever field or something you know like like you lose that kind of aspect but it becomes more about the technique um mm -hmm. you know we use certain apples where we were only going for uh, basically acid and aroma in the apples that i picked so we weren't going for some crazy old heirloom tannin you know uh, crazy apple that was going to impart some kind of thing it was more like you know what's what's going to really complement this process and this this uh, uh style of drink that we're trying to do i, so. I think that the 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 acidity is really nice in that respect. Like you get a really refreshing. That's why I'm like, yeah, I want to go to the beach. Yeah. You know, it's like a really refreshing summer kind of yeah, kind of drink. They blend with well. some depth. Yeah, yeah, it's balanced. Yeah, that was the uh, the goal. I mean, to me, it's um, we we all said this when we we uh, were trying that it's a lot more cider like than we thought. It's actually um, uh, it's a five barrel batch we made. It's three barrels of the um, beer mixed with two barrels of cider. So, um, but it's actually come out way more. It seems way more to cider me. It tastes like me. a cider that has some hops in it. I think it's a great crossover cider. I think a lot of people at breweries will drink this and be more interested in cider. Hey, we're gonna take a short break right now. We'll be back in a few minutes. We have another guest that joined us, and we'll see you soon on the Cider Week episode of Beer Sessions Radio. All right. episode is brought to you by Roberta's, home of Heritage Radio Network for 10 years. Roberta's was founded in Bushwick in 2008 and has become one of the most iconic restaurants in the country. HRN made its home inside of Roberta's in 2009, and together they have become part of the DIY fabric of the neighborhood. Roberta's, the pizza restaurant, is open for lunch and dinner seven days a week and serves much more than just the famous wood-fired pizzas. Their team dreams up new salads, pastas, and sandwiches on the regular. Roberta's Tiki Bar is alive and well in the back garden, serving up frozen drinks in the summer and hot toddies in the winter. Stop by the bakery and takeout spot next door for fresh breads, sticky buns, and pizzas to go. And of course, there's the two Michelin-starred Blanca tucked away in the garden for truly daring diners. But Roberta's also extends beyond Bushwick, with multiple locations in New York City and now in Los Angeles. You can also find their frozen pies in grocery stores around the country. The spirit of Roberta's, like Heritage Radio Network, is everywhere. Here's to many more years of pizza-powered radio. Learn more about Roberta's at robertaspizza.com. Hey, hey, welcome back to a special episode, Cider Week NYC, Beer Sessions Radio on the Heritage Radio Network. Well, my week is just made by Maria Kennedy. I had a Perry from Herefordshire, England, that was made from a single tree. Their fruit from a single tree. So, and one more time, Maria, what was that that bottling? Because it's unbelievable. Uh, it's it's called a single tree Perry. Yes, yes. It's called the Holmer H O L M E R, and it's from Ross on Wye Cider and Perry Company. And you can't get it here. 
I, I don't think you can get that one there. I got that one on the farm a few years back. It's pretty awesome. And I, so, I brought it back in my suitcase. So, so to, <laughs> to me, you're, you're this, like, folk culture person who was an academic in um, Finger Lakes, and I, I follow your blog, Sided with Maria. But the question I have for you from our producer is, what is Fruit Heritage? Tell us about the Finger Lakes Fruit Heritage Project that you were working on when you were in the Finger Lakes. Okay. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have a multi-part uh, answer here. Part one is that uh, when I was working for the Arts Council of the Southern Finger Lakes, um, I did a Finger Lakes Fruit Heritage Project that was doing oral histories with local people about how they interacted with cider in the landscape. People who were foraging, people who were making cider on their farms, people who were drinking cider, just what was people's experience and history with cider in this particular region? And we did a bunch of interviews. We set up a little recording. Uh, I don't know if studio is too exalted a term, but we had like a microphone <laughs> set up at the Farmer's Mark, Trumansburg Farmer's Market. And we just collected stories. So that's what I was into. And I was really interested in trying to find the relationship between um, what people's everyday experience of apples and orchards in the land was and how that connected with the growing cider industry. Um, so that was my little research project. Since that time, this is like part two of the answer, there's been a lot of um, discussion in the cider industry uh, about the word heritage and what that means. and the relationship between people and the land has a lot of complicated history to it, uh, both in terms of the theft of land from Native Americans and the ways that the land has been worked with enslaved labor, especially in the South, but also here in the North. I think a lot of people forget that um, New York had one of the biggest slave trading you know, markets in our country at one time. So there's a lot that goes into the word heritage. Um, the way that I used it when I started doing my project was in a very um, limited way. And I think the way that the cider industry has expanded that conversation around the world, the word heritage has been really meaningful and is helping a lot of people rethink what is our relationship with the land and what's the history of that and how do we contend with that today in a way that is And there's equitable. a shadow when you say heritage. Now you, people, the Tea Party type people like to claim that term. Yeah, and I have I just want to say one more thing and that's this, you know, I live in a world. I'm a I'm a professor of uh, you know, I study I study and teach folklore. Um, I study and teach heritage. I live in a world where heritage is not a bad word, where it's not owned by the far right and white supremacists, and I'm of the opinion that we shouldn't cede that word to white supremacists. I, I agree. So. I think it's a good term. We're heritage radio network. We talk about a lot of things. Mm -hmm. So this is a good conversation, but heritage fruit. Um, what else do you want to talk about that, that project you did in the Finger Lakes? Um, I, I just love discovering trees, you know? I love discovering, it doesn't matter if, sometimes it's interesting when they are cultivated trees that have a history of a farm and how the people planted those trees. And sometimes they're trees that have grown on their own and they're like, they're like sprouting out of the ground and having their own unique place in, in the universe. Um, I, I just love discovering them because each and every one is really interesting and unique. That's great. We had another guest join us. Um, please introduce yourself because it's great to see you again. Oh, hey, I'm, uh, I'm Paige. I'm uh, with Boutique Wine, Spirits, and Ciders. We're a retail store up in Fishkill, New York. And I'm uh, joined by my brother and partner, Gennaro. Uh, Ciao, also. Gennaro. 
So, uh, so we're Paige, both here. we had you on last month. We talked about cider, and I didn't realize so you're you're this little wine store in Fishco, which is like kind of Hudson Valley. But you told me that you're a destination for the whole Northeast. So you have a, a how many ciders do you have in your wine store? So uh, right now we have what do you say, Janelle? About 175 or so. Get in closer, Janelle. Come on, we got to hear your voice. Uh, 175 in bottle and can, and then we have uh, 13 on tap for growler fills and also for tasting, of course. So uh, we're we're flirting with 200 craft ciders in the store, mostly small small batch. Stuff. And we did we did a great show with you and a few others people back in October. You can listen in on that. But the question I have for you is about regionality. I mean, you know, obviously you're curating an awesome selection of cider, and this is for consumers and retailers alike. Um, let's talk about Finger Lakes. Um, what selections do you have from Finger Lakes, and and do you define what the Finger Lakes producers are? Or how do you represent that region to people that, that come in, or, or do you do that at all? <laughs> I think that was five questions. Regionality. <laughs> <laughs> okay. For so, the retailer. Uh, so uh, there's some great producers up there in the Finger Lakes. Uh, off the top of my head, Kite and String, um, South Hills is phenomenal. Uh, any any of uh, Autumn stuff. Um, Eves. Eves. Uh, exceptional. Um, I mean, there's some some really awesome awesome producers up there. I mean, our, our customers don't necessarily uh, look specifically for uh, stuff up in the Finger Lake versus Hudson Valley, even versus uh, we're starting to see some stuff coming out of Long Island at this point um, in terms of New York cider. A lot of people just want New York cider, and they're kind of considering it, or at least our customer base is considering it as a whole. Um, New York versus Vermont versus uh, you Oregon. Know, Oregon, yeah, versus California. Um, you know, and, and all of those places are, are really, really big. I mean, California's huge. Oregon's huge. I mean, you know, these are large plots of land that we're talking about. That's great. That's exactly what I, I always love the retailer. Um, congratulations, Gennaro and Paige, on having one of the top uh, wine stores that sell cider in New York State. Thank you, guys. But that, that brings us back to Jahil, that kind of conversation we had earlier. So basically what Paige is saying, which I kind of agree with, is that so you're based in New York City. Yep. You actually produce the cider just over the border here in Queens. Yep. But right. you have an orchard in New York State. You're sourcing juices. Tell us a little bit more, more about your, your model and the production that you do because you're a New York State cider maker. Yeah. I mean, we were one of the first. I think we were maybe the second uh, farm cidery when they when – they, uh, issue those licenses um and for me it was just i wanted to have a cidery here in the city it was it was uh something where like you can go to breweries here that wineries here in the city it's like um it was something that i thought would be nice to have here in the city and um there's a whole bunch of other challenges obviously that come with it so for us it's just been years of figuring out how to do it here um without sort of it being too much of a pain and, and you mostly uh, you have juice trucked in to yeah, I mean, we've done everything. We've brought... Uh, what's it I, called? Do you call it a facility? Is it a warehouse? Is it a cidery? It's like a closet with uh, <laughs> a press in it. It's tiny. We, so um, you press there too in Queens? Yeah, yeah. So we originally started out pressing everything, and then really quickly we were like... Our press isn't uh, very high capacity, so we were buying apples from places that could press what we press in a week in two hours. So we were like, okay, well, we'll just start getting it pressed. So rather than you know shipping the apples in and out, shipping the um, spare pommes in and out, all this sort of environmental impact from all the unnecessary shipping. It's like, I'll just go out there with my tanks, you guys press it straight into my tanks, and then I bring the tanks back. So I'll do that run probably every couple of weeks, bring the juice back in, and then, 
you know, all the, the cider making happens from here. So Talk, talk about heritage cider. I, it seems that in New York State, especially with the Cider Weeks, um, one of the beneficiaries have been these, like, longtime family apple farms, whether they're third or fifth generation, that have been growing apples a long time. You know, 30 years ago, there were places you go and pick your own. Now they may have someone in the family or, or the new generation is making hard cider. Um, that seems like a natural outgrowth of what's happened. Does anyone want to talk about that or any specific uh, fam- long-time family-owned uh, uh, apple cider families? Melissa? I mean, so I'm still currently the owner of Kite and String, um, and Kite and String sources from the Finger Lakes and also a little bit from the areas uh, in, that I mentioned on Lake Ontario. And I think that's where a lot of the apple families are the most strong. Um, De Fisher Fruit Farm, which makes rootstock cider, is really one of them. That that cidery was started by the son of David De Fisher, who wanted to transition. I think what's interesting is it's not just uh, apple farms. It's also dairy farms that are really going through that transition right now. And a lot of people are looking for the value add generally to make their farms work in the next generation in the economy we live in right now. Like if you don't own your value add, you're basically getting basement level commodity prices. Yeah. Um, I'll give it. Oh, you go, Maria, next. I was just have, I've had a unique experience of having lived in the Finger Lakes and now I live down in New Jersey, and you don't think of New Jersey as an agricultural state, but it really is. Um, but it's so different, and so you've got some generational, you know, uh, fruit farmers in New Jersey who have like Terhune orchards and Mellick's Town Farm, and they are um, well, Mellick's is making cider, um, but they have some unique challenges. Especially the closer you get to the city, the higher the land value is, the more pressure you have on your farm to really like maximize value in terms of whatever your product is. And that product could just be apples, but increasingly it has to be value added. And that value add can be not just the apples themselves, but also the like on-farm tourism. And on-farm tourism is a really big part of agriculture in New Jersey, at least for the apple farms that I visited. It's really a very different environment. So I think not all apple farms are created equal. And, and Paige as a retailer. So like when I'm talking about these generational families, to me it's like there's Samascot Orchard, there's Wilco, there's Indian Ladder Farms up in Albany. And some of the brands that I've seen, I know there's Embark, which is out of Rochester, which is one of those longtime family apple farms. Uh, Indian Ladder Farms now has... There's also in- Treasury Cider, which is out of Fishkill Farms, right in Fishkill, which is in the middle of the Hudson Valley, and they're producing some great ciders. But they also do that's, that's your point, uh, a lot of agro-tourism mm-hmm. um, there with the U-Picks and um, people visiting the farm and sort of seeing how cider is made and how where how apples grow and all of that part, and a lot of people come up from the city for that. So there, and there's Bad Seed, and there's, sure. there's a lot bad closer seed to the city nine as well. If you get you know, Orange County, you've got uh, Soons, you know, the yep, uh, Orchard Beaches, Hill, you know, they're a Century Farm, and uh, a lot of the farms I go from, they're all, all listed Century Farms that have been, and they're quite close to the city. That's kind of a... So there's a different type, so there's like, you know, there are these traditional farmers. And are, are most of them, are they transitioning? Are they starting to grow or plant or graft more cider varieties? Or are they just using the, the, the mix? I know that Indian Ladder Farms told me that they have like 48 different types of cider apples on their farm, and they, they make blends. Um, farmers, anybody want to join in? I mean, I, I, the, my information is anecdotal, but I, I think it's a, it's a gamble. 
you know, if you've got long-term family fruit farm, you're going to go where the where the money is and where the regular money is. And so you've got, if you're going to start doing cider, you might start doing it slowly. You might start grafting like a few acres here, a few acres there. If you've got a, a good client or a good um, person who's buying, you might be able to speak to that, um, Jahil. But, you know, if it's the relationship between the cider maker and the, the apple grower, I think really determines whether... Yeah. Whether they're going to transition over from eating fruit to cider fruit. Yeah, I think it's tough. Like, I mean, to, to get them to, to grow cider fruit, you know, and uh, a lot of the farms I work with, they're a lot closer to the city. So it's like what you were saying before. They have, um, uh, it's a lot, you know, more intense sort of financial restraints and, and pressure and, and whatnot. Um, so a lot of them I find they, they're either trying to repurpose some of the kind of like hybrid fruit I guess they have or um, things that can be used for cider and, and um, or, you know, like you said, add, just adding adding these other revenue streams. Um, no one I've really spoken to so far is wanting to, to jump over, but that's, that's, that's farms very close to the city. But you've got like, um, you know, Dressel Farms, things like that, where personally they make cider and then they're planting a lot of it for their own production. Rachel, the question I want to ask you, and you can, you can, you can answer it officially as part of... Cider Weeks in New York and the U.S., New York Cider Association. What are the requirements to be a member of New York Cider Association? Because I know it's, it's, you're trying to include a lot of different types of producers. Um, so I actually don't actually work for the New York Cider Association, so I'm not exactly sure, to be perfectly honest. I do know, I, I'm really just coordinating the Cider Weeks, um, I do know that the main requirement is that it's produced from New York State apples. <laughs> um, and I know that there's a new beautiful logo that they just released that it's uh, basically a New York um, apple logo that you can put on your bottles now as recognition for that this is a New York State product made with New York State apples. And I know that's the primary, like the most important. Um, and that, that kind of said, that reinforces what Paige was saying, that right. customers are looking for New York how do you define it, Paige? I mean, when people ask you, is, it, is there a criteria you're applying or it just has to be made from New York apples? I mean, well, I mean, when we uh, when we curate our section together, uh, we, we specifically look for not only um, cider makers that make from New York apples, but don't use uh, shy away from concentrates and other additives along those lines as well um, as being a smaller producer. We're not looking for the mass producers. Uh, we're we're looking for s- small home home gro- you know s- small farms that actually you know are, are making cider from their apples from their orchards or sourcing it from an orchard down the block. That's that's what we're looking for. What, what's the, is there on your website? Does it have a list of all the ciders that you carry? Close to it? Not yet, but no. we actually just redid our website, so we're actually just adding that. And what I is, actually what added, is your website? Added, added all of the categories of cider that we have. Um, our website is uh, boutique W as in wine, S as in spirits, C as in cider.com. That's complicated, but I love it. <laughs> boutique WSC.com. Boutique, I love club? it. Rachel, wait, talk in the mic. Oh, wait. Do you do a cider club? <laughs> Not yet, Rachel. But we're we just got our, our website redone, and we're <laughs> looking to do that And this then, year. Jahil, we're pouring Good more question. stuff. So keep it about. So you poured a, a can. Cans are new for you. Yeah. Quickly tell us what, what is it and what's the juice in it that made that? Um, okay, so cans. That, um, we've got a range of ciders, everything from from sort of everyday stuff we make, this, the stuff that's on tap in uh, loads of uh, bars and things around the city. Um, one of the ones we've just cracked there is Pom. That's our pomegranate. Uh, so wait, so if I see a Descendant cider on draft in a bar restaurant, yep. what is it probably? Which cider? 
Uh, well, the, so I'll make a base cider that'll go into something like Palm, it'll go into Succession, which is our kind of um, semi-dry, you know, everyday cider. That'll be a, a blend. I, I, numerous farms I go to, but I'm basically looking for very acid-forward apples, you know, Max, Empires, Cortlands, all the kind of um, apples that I can get that have sort of good properties for making a, a sort of a, a simple, you know, everyday cider. And then you, cr- you, still, you crush those in Queens as well? Yep. Yeah, or, or at uh, one of the places I get them from mostly does all the pressing for us now. We just yeah. put the juice in. So yeah. what was in the can again? That's yeah, so that one we're drinking there is Pom. That's Descendant? Our pom. That's our uh, po- pom. Uh, pom. Yeah, it's our pomegranate cider. Okay. So and that's kind of our rosé style cider. This nice tall bottle. You brought a bottle of cider, which is kind of nice to see. Yeah, well, so I mean, everything we've done up until this week has been bottled. Um, but we've done um, a few sort of higher-end ciders. This dry, this is the cider that basically we launched the whole company on. This was the cider I used to make before I started Descendant. Um, it's all based around Northern Spy and wine sap apples. Um, what's it called? Descendant? It's or? called Descendant Dry. It's just dry. a dry cider. So all it is is just I source real, the best apples I can find. Um, I've got, you know, obviously the, the production involved, but I'm just trying to make a really good representation of those two apples. Uh, and I've been doing that for years and basically we've now six years of, of six vintages we've got of that. But the... Uh, the last five vintages. Um, this Friday, actually, at Fifth Hamber Brewing Company, we're doing a five-year vertical tasting of all five vintages. Um, so anyone that wants to come along to that, you can check it out. There's links through our Instagram and, uh, uh, or the Fifth Hamber website. Um, tickets are on Eventbrite. And, yeah, we're going to basically talk through all five vintages, the changes. Uh, one of the years in there, we actually added some bittersweet apples because it was a really bad year. You're doing a great job doing a crossover. You're marketing through breweries. I want to ask Melissa Maria one more question because it kind of started with cider... In land. So, Melissa, you, you, you mentioned a new project you're working on, but it's, you're not ready to announce it yet. But I want to ask about it. So you're going to be foraging <laughs> apples. Tell us the places that you're going, to, you're going to be sourcing the apples from and kind of the ethos behind it. Because I know you, you're, you've been a farmer and a cider maker. What is it about these lost trees? These lost apple trees? Is, is that a good term for them? Yeah, abandoned, feral. I think it depends where you're from in the country, how you respond to those words. Um, I think it's about acknowledging the bounty that the Northeast specifically provides in terms of rainfall, climate, and the food that's accessible to us in a foraging capacity and what right we have to access it. Um, It's really hard to get that fruit. We spend a lot of time competing with other animals, actually, for it, but... What was the specific thing you wanted me to address in that? I don't know. I wanted to see if you actually had anything to say about it. <laughs> I have a lot to say about well, it. Well, keep going, baby. Come I on. Think, <laughs> I think there's some reparations issues around this uh, federal land stuff that we're... So there's exploring. like other than national... You're going into national forests where there's yeah. former farms and there's old trees. Yeah, we're talking about land-grant revolution stuff. So that's all land that was taken from the Haudenosaunee. At some point, but perhaps now you're saying that we should be able to go into the these public lands and harvest apples. Well, I think we should. I think everybody should. I, think I, I know. A, I know a, a few cider makers up in Finger Lakes that have done this, and uh, it seems to be this like uh, source of amazing like historical apples. I think. Th- I think getting back to Finger Lakes, let's talk about that, Maria, because it seems that that's the the, the one thing that Finger Lakes has that most of the country doesn't is this huge like historical apples in these forests well i think i don't I actually don't think that we're unique in that way um i think there's a lot of places like this but 
Um, what interested me was when I was doing my, my research project is that I was talking to regular people, you know, people who had grown up in the area and were foraging the trees, people whose grandparents had lived down the road and they would go, you know, especially in the depression and era, the era after that, when those farms were abandoned, people just go harvest that fruit because it was there and because it was free. And it was part of their food sovereignty. It was part of their ability to make something that would be pleasant and pleasurable for them and give them another resource to use. And people come up with their pickup trucks and fill up the back of their pickup truck with apples and they go home and they make cider. And it's not, there are cider makers who are doing it commercially now. That's cool. But it's something that's happened there for a long time. It's not something that's new. It's something that is part of who the people are in that region. So a, a friend of mine, like uh, Sullivan County, Livingston Manor, a friend of mine a few years ago bought an old house. He's fixing it up. He's got about 40 acres. Turns out he's got, I don't know, how many really old cider trees. What does he do with them? You know, they're, they're, they've been there on kind of check for 50 years. Give them to me. Come on, say it, jump in. So do you, what do you do? What do you do? do yeah, you? I'm, I'm around the corner. I'm his neighbor. So you probably uh, already yeah, met I'll this guy. But. Yeah, we do. So every year, well, every year we can, we make a cider called Wilderness. James Power. It's all, all wild foraged uh, um, apples, basically all, all what, what you guys are talking about. So um, uh, old seedling apple trees, all the hedgerow trees, things that farmers planted just to attract deer for hunting, all that kind of stuff. So guys like that, they're exactly the kind of people that we're... Um, we're happy to come and pick their apples. So, so down the road, the things like Melissa, you're talking about, are we going to need to have, you're going to have contracts. This is going to become a business relationship because obviously these old trees are, are going to be worth something to cider makers. Yeah. You're going to have wars over them. Yeah. That's, I mean, I think there's a lot of people trying to own the concept of wild forage, which is pretty much directly contradictory to that concept. Yeah. And <laughs> I think that's, I think that's what we're working with here is that people should have access to abundant food. And there's that whole, one dish, one spoon concept that is not ours. Um, it's an Iroquois. So, how concept. do you feel about if you? So, which animals are you competing with for these old <laughs> apples? In the Finger Lakes National Forest, we're competing with cows. Just cows. It's crazy. No bears or deer or. Uh, deer now the cow. So, in the Finger Lakes National Forest, there's the, the Hector Grazing Association, and they do grazing from May to November. And um, my friend that I forage with, and I. Wait, so so cows are grazed on this public land. Yes. Oh, well, that's an example of progress. Sure. Um, <laughs> I have, I, as a person who has raised many different kinds of animals and feels really strongly about the regenerative grazing model, uh, we can go into that later. <laughs> um, I think there's, it's actually fairly problematic, but um, I would like we to... We have a great show, The Farm Report, that covers all that kind of yeah, stuff, yeah. so you should be on So that it's a multi-use, quote-unquote, property. Great. So you're competing with cattle. Yeah, for drops. And the whole premise in cider is that drops mean readiness, they mean ripeness, they mean full sugars, they mean full polyphenols. And we never get that with cows in the mix. Well, I, I wanted to say, like you referenced, Jahil, that um, you know some of the, your neighbors are using it to grant the land for hunting. And I think a lot of the places that are sort of wild forage places are actually they're properties that people have maintained for a variety of reasons, not that used to be agricultural, that aren't anymore. And a lot of people upstate hunt, and a lot of people maintain their properties. Or for they hunting. ride snowmobiles. So I mean, some of our neighbors they're they're like um, lands owned by like uh, New York, Pennsylvania hunting clubs, and they mm -hmm. literally buy these blocks of land. They put random seedlings everywhere, specifically for the deer. just to yeah. And and if you ask them to pick it, most of the time they're like, no, we want the 
apples to fall to attract the deer to to do all that so they don't really care about us or cider but uh, well i'll tell you 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 keep up with ciderweeknyc.com there's still stuff going on and if you're listening to this later there's other cider weeks and, and the main thing is to know about the places in new york city like top bars and restaurants i'll say like Mari's wine bar uh, Brooklyn, Brooklyn Cider House in Bushwick, as is a lot of great places that year-round are featuring really good ciders. But if anyone want to ask or say one more thing, because we're going to wrap it up really fast. If not, it's cool. Paige, you, top retailer. You're my buddy. Come on. Thanks for the retail perspective, because that's what this is all about. I want to say everybody needs to pick cider for Thanksgiving this year. Pick a hashtag pick cider for Thanksgiving this year. That's what I want to say. All right. Anybody else with any outbursts? Melissa, you're like known for outbursts. (laughs) I think that you need to really select where you're buying cider from so that you know that there's an orchard in the landscape. Yeah. And Rachel, so much is going on with Cider Week. By the time most of you listen, it'll be over, but... What what would you go to as a consumer this week in an ideal world if you weren't working all week? <laughs> well, I'm, I'm working and enjoying the events. But um, I have to say there are three cider festivals that happened. One that, Jimmy, you produced, Cider Feast, that passed. That was amazing. Um, there's uh, Lower East Cider Fest happening this Thursday, um, the 14th, if you hear it before that, where you can taste ciders from all 29 cideries participating in Cider Week. And there's one at Brooklyn Cider House on the 17th, the last Sunday. day of Cider Week, where you can catch... Bushwick Cider Fest, right? Uh, Bushwick Cider Fest at Brooklyn Cider House, where you can taste um, 20 different cideries participating. I'll tell you, if you're in New York Wednesday tomorrow, you're listening live, I'm going as is on the west side because there's Cider by Hand, which is all these like special orchard-based cider guys. That the, the geeks love them, and, and I, like, I like the liquid. But once again, everybody, Maria, thank you so much. You brought me a single tree parry from England. That is probably the best thing we've ever drank on here. Paige Fury and Gennaro, thank you so much for coming in. Boutique Wines and Spirits. Fishkill, top cider retailer in New York, as far as I'm concerned. Rachel Freer, Cider Week organizer, great job, and I'm so proud of you. You're, you're, I'm going to go to Cider Week Western New York, Finger Lakes, Hudson, Hudson Valley, Valley, and New York City yeah. next year. All right. <laughs> Melissa Madden, you are an inspiration, cider maker, farmer. I cannot wait to hear about your new project when you're ready to announce it. You okay with that? Definitely. Thank you. And then Jahil, <laughs> you give us the roundup, man. Say something, because you got the great accent. Thanks, Jimmy. Yeah, thanks for doing this, mate. Cider Week, everyone. And where the hell do you make cider again? Right here in Queens. Queens, New York City. New York City. City. All right. So thanks so much. And again, if you had a question for future guests, um, you can email us at askbeersessionsradio at gmail. We will read it on the air, and we will say your name. I'm Jimmy Carboni. Thanks to our producer. Great job, Dylan Hoyer, our intern, Kevin Chang Barnum, and our master engineer, Matt Patterson. Thanks for listening, and we'll catch you next time on Beer Sessions Radio. All right. Woo! Beer Sessions Radio is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at Facebook.com slash Heritage Radio Network. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like. 
Tell your friends and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.